0: Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Emmerich. Hey, it's the Dev Dad from Naples,
1: Florida. Christopher Denandi. Hey, it's the Vanilla JS guy up in Massachusetts. Amy Knight.
2: Hey, hey from Nashville.
1: AJ O'Neill.
3: Yo, 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 that one guy coming at you live from the freelancer sphere.
0: Christopher Beekler. Hey, it's Chris from closebrace.com coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island. And I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. Man, we have a full panel today. We have a special guest this week and that's Mike North. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself, remind people who you are? We had you on a while ago.
4: Yeah, happy to be here. And I am kind of the Ember guy at Frontend Masters. I do a lot of training and building of video courses and blogs and stuff like that for Ember.js. And lately I've been sort of pushing into TypeScript as well. I am LinkedIn's web developer trainer and have been for a couple of years now.
0: Nice. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile and other options that you have for mobile development. So, if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at ReactNativeRadio.com. I think last time we had you on, we talked about Ember and we've had somebody on within the last six months or so to talk about Ember.
4: Yep, you had Sam Selikoff.
0: That's right. But it's not a topic that we talk about a lot. And so I'm I'm a little curious from where you sit, what's going on with Ember and, and where is it heading?
4: Sure. Well, it's it's a really exciting time for Ember right now because effectively what is about to be released in a stable version of the framework is a total reinvention of the way you build with it. We've gone from a world where you have to know like a whole set of APIs and you have to sort of you have to write what people call Ember script, which is like to say that you very much feel every piece of the framework that you touch, right? To set state, you have to do this.set. To get things, you have to do this.get. Everything feels very Embery. And we're moving towards this new edition of Ember, which you can think of kind of like a major release, which almost goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum where you feel like you're writing vanilla JavaScript and HTML. And you just have a couple decorators. You're sprinkling the framework in, but it's not in your way. And you don't really feel it very much. You you really just feel like you're a JavaScript developer working with native classes and async functions. And it's so much fun to build with this this new version of the framework. And this sort of sets the the stage for the next like five or six years of the way we're going to think about components and the way we're going to design things. Ember has never changed so much in its eight-year lifetime.
0: Nice. It's, it's also interesting to see it continue to evolve in a world of React and Vue and Angular and some of these other frameworks that seem to have grown a bit bigger than Ember.
4: Yep, absolutely. I've been waiting for this point in time for a while. It is where we are finally letting go of the cruft, the stuff we had to carry along in order to work in browsers like IE8. So like we haven't supported IE8 for a while, but this is the Like, we have finally, at this moment, managed to jettison that stuff away and get to a point where, you know, we can use these modern features, modern uh, syntax that we've been so excited about for the past several years in the job.
1: What's your problem with the best browser ever built? IE8. (laughs) The gold (laughs) standard of browsers.
4: The gold standard of browsers. I remember IE8, I remember as being, that was the browser where JavaScript worked reasonably, but the DOM API did not. That was better than IE6, which is like neither worked reasonably. But IE8 that that's where we had no way of listening for a resize of the window in a in a reasonable way. <laughs> we had no fine property. It was the reason we had jQuery, right? You needed jQuery for IE8 because that was how you could have a single way of listening to events that worked across Chrome and IE and, and you know Firefox, all the other browsers you cared about. That represents like The reason Ember has felt its age is because that's what it was built for. And with Ember 314, which is coming up at the beginning of October, that opens this door to to going from like this antiquated way of building apps to a super sleek and light and modern feel. So my, my wife just graduated from a coding boot camp and I sat her down with this new version of Ember, and she had a React background, and uh, she built like the whole game of Monopoly just through vanilla JavaScript classes and Handlebars templates. Like she hardly needed to learn anything at all about the framework. So we've gone from like the steepest learning curve amongst all of the popular you know JavaScript frameworks to hardly having to learn anything at all. It's almost like you need to know like five things, five rules, and The instincts you get from just using JavaScript the normal way will carry you the rest of the way.
5: So I'm mildly curious, you have eight years in, and this sounds like a really significant change. Uh, How does the community feel about this? Are they excited or are they nervous?
4: They are super excited. and, And part of that comes from the framework's commitment to stability. What's odd about the way this is rolling out is it's not actually a major release. This is because Ember's major releases are super boring they do nothing other than like discard deprecated code. And sometimes we drop support for a browser, but that's it. As a rule, we only do that on major releases. So this is basically all hidden behind feature flags where like a certain set of feature flags, you turn them on and you get Ember Octane, this new modern feel for the framework. But all the old stuff still works. So this is great if you're concerned about like migration and how are we going to get onto this new way of doing things. And at LinkedIn, for example, we have huge apps. We have, I believe, the biggest single page app in the entire world. And it is not simple just to sort of like flip a switch and everything feels modern now. So the idea of like letting people consume these new features, these the, the things that make up this new programming model, as we call it, The ability to do that incrementally and to have like the old and new world exist side by side, like you can have some components that are the 2011 style Ember and right next to them, the 2019 style of Ember and everything kind of works seamlessly together. Part of the reason it's taken so long to do this is that's a lot of work. Anyone who's been building in this space knows that having that kind of compatibility and all the tests to make sure that everything interoperates the way it should that like triples or quadruples the timeline for building this kind of stuff out. Part of why the community is, like there is no fear that I've seen and no, no concern about stability because we have this long track record of not leaving apps behind and making sure that everyone can take the next step. Right down to building code mods that will kind of rewrite as much of your app as is possible in this new world.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you that I was a big part of the Angular community during the Angular to Angular 2 transition. And that that gap was painful. And they did a ton of work to make it easier and a ton of work to make it so you could run Angular and the old Angular side by side. But, it, yeah, it, it just wasn't that seamless. I mean, now it's nice. You know, once you're up to past Angular 2 or later, right, the the upgrade path usually isn't that painful. But... I think there were a lot of lessons learned in the original version of Angular. And then they, they saw a few things that reacted that they wanted to pull in and a few other things that they realized were, would make massive gains. And so they, yeah, they did basically a big rewrite, but yeah, it's, it's good to hear that. Yeah. They're focused on stability and making sure that, Hey, if you have an app running on this, you know, you can upgrade it and it'll still work. I mean, unless you need IE8 or something like that, right. Then, then you're kind of stuck where you are, but.
4: Yep. It's not just that. So, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct there. But to put a bow on that, my original front-end master's course, the, the Intro to Ember course, I recorded that in, I believe, 2014. So that is five years ago. I've had to change, I think, two lines of code in getting it migrated from where it was at when I originally recorded it to today. So like so much work is put into making sure that you can take in all of the performance improvements. All the new features, and you should just be able to kind of upgrade version by version. You get great deprecation notices telling you, go look at this markdown page to see how you should change this piece of code. And like, there are plenty of apps out there that have gone all the way from like pre 1.0 Ember to today without too much pain. To connect that back to the Angular 1 and Angular 2 idea, Ember originally, like the first version of Ember supported the same browsers that Angular 1 did. So this is the only framework that I'm aware of, or at least the only mainstream one, that has managed to go all the way from the IE7, IE8 IE days to today, where we're like, looking forward to not having to support IE11, hopefully soon, but like with, without any big break where we're saying you know there's a huge shift and this is a rewrite. It has been a, an evolution step-by-step step, since, since the IE 7 and 8 days, which is, I mean, that's a huge achievement. That, I hope, gives a lot of our users the confidence that if they get on board, they're not going to be left behind, right? There, there are really not, not as many gambles in this space in terms of, you know, if you guess the wrong state management library or if you guess the wrong build tool, like if you chose Gulp instead of Grunt, Going to be off track, and you're going to have to rewrite that. You know, we we largely don't experience that kind of thing. We move a little bit slower because of it, but we have a track record
3: of making sure that path continues into the future. So, who are the major sponsors of Ember that keep it going? Because uh, I think you're exactly right. Like, Ember it, it, definitely has a, an ethos of stability and longevity. It's been around; it keeps going. I have no reason to believe it'll stop going. But why? Why? Why should I believe it's not gonna? It's not going to stop. I think the copyright holder of Ember is a consultancy called
4: Tilda. That is uh, where Yehuda Katz works. And there are several core team members that work over at Tilda. LinkedIn has hired a bunch of core team members as well. And we do a very good job of making sure that things are decentralized in that there is a open source governance aspect to this framework that is not tied to any specific company. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Companies, of course, get to choose what their employees are, you know, paid to work on. And if you, we hire like 12 people to work on open source, that's going to be trying to solve the problems that we're experiencing. But thankfully, because this is the framework for ambitious apps, the hope is everybody else is suffering a little bit from these problems as well. And we kind of, in serving our own needs, we serve everybody else's needs as well. But there's a lot of interest in this area. In fact, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but Apple Music just released an app. It's sort of like iTunes for the web, like a Spotify type web-based music player. So that is an Ember app. And they just released it a couple of days ago. Apple is a huge user of Ember, partly because like this is a cousin of Sproutcore. This framework is a cousin of Sproutcore 2. It has evolved a lot since the Sproutcore days, but originally it was Sproutcore 2.0. And then the first commit of Ember was like bring that code into a new repo. And it has evolved on its own since then. Netflix uses it quite a lot. Intercom is a huge user. That that little smiley face, you know, in browser chat thing that a lot of people use for customer service. So that that is a big Ember app. Lots and lots of people use it. NASA uses it, it is all over the place. People don't notice. If you have a PlayStation, The UI, the the menu system inside the PlayStation itself, that's an Ember app. So we have lots and lots and lots of different uses. It's just in the Twitter sphere, you wouldn't know it because, you know, it's a smaller community. It is steadily growing. I, I don't have concerns about, about it like losing its momentum. If anything, the fact that we've gone from people maintaining the framework in their night and weekend time, we've moved more towards like, you hire a developer and you pay them and they work on the framework and they make it better. That has let us have more focus and we can hit our goals more reliably because this is sort of people's day job and they have first class time they can spend on it. Um, I think that we've noticed a lot of improvement in the past two years as a result of that shift.
5: So has LinkedIn been hiring core Ember team members to basically then continue working on Ember?
4: Absolutely. And that, that's the team that I work with. So at this point, I'm going to have to just guess here. I think we have eight core team members over here. And that constitutes, let's say, about half of the core team. Cool. In addition to that, we sponsor open source work. So we'll hire as consultants other core team members to, to do things like make it so Ember works well with Webpack, right? Traditionally, we've had our own build tools. Broccoli has been our build tool, but we have found that we're kind of out on our own on that one we see a lot of value in making it so that common tools that people already know how to use work with our stuff. So that's the kind of thing where we'll just say, you know, core team member, we will pay you like one day a week until it's done. Dedicate that one day to just working on this and we'll, we'll contribute some resources to it as well, but um, we're trying to, you know, move things forward in every way we can. In the vein of moving things forward, how does Ember uh, work well with TypeScript? Is it able to handle that? Good question. And that's a good question for me because I'm one of the people that are building that that technology out. So you can install an Ember add-on with one terminal command that will enable TypeScript in your Ember app. It, It is as easy as I've ever seen to go from a JavaScript project to a TypeScript project. So... One of the things that we're a bit sensitive to is the fact that like JavaScript and TypeScript in an ideal world are sort of very compatible with each other. But if you look at things like like decorators or like private class fields, these are things where kind of TypeScript had to get out ahead of the language a little bit. And the language has sort of made different decisions. Like TC39 has decided to use hashtags for private class fields instead of the, the private keyword. So there are some issues about that could cause misalignment. And we have built things such that you don't have to worry about that. We put everything through Babel. So whatever works in JavaScript, like if TypeScript can understand it, you will get consistent output no matter whether you're using TypeScript as source or JavaScript as source. And the main things that remain to be done there are just making the performance better and improving the types. And I I do a lot of work in the definitely typed space to make sure that those are as good as they can be, but they can always be better.
2: So speaking of using TypeScript, I know like the Rails community is super beginner friendly, but I know like for me personally, I always try to steer developers in the React direction just because I think if you can stick to like the React tutorial, it is, you know, and you don't have to like include their build system and all that just yet, just to like kind of learn the basics it sticks to more like vanilla JavaScript. Like there are trade-offs, like it's good to learn vanilla JavaScript, but then also having a framework in place, I think kind of like helps it so that if you do focus on Ember and you change jobs, then it's going to be easier to learn the Ember code base of the new job. But all that to say where Ember stands today, like how much of Ember do you have to learn and how much will your vanilla JavaScript experience? How far will that take you?
4: That is a great question, Amy. I love this question because my answer a year ago would have been totally different than compared to what it is today. Good, that makes me happy. (laughs) A year ago, I would have said, like, you kind of, I almost would steer people towards learning a little bit about Ruby on Rails because that's a common ancestor of Rails. Rails, like, it's like (laughs) people think of Rails.js, right? It has like controllers, it has a router.js, just like your router RB. And it honestly, it's part of what drew me to Ember. I was a, a, like, I loved Ruby on Rails. That's what got me into building web apps.
2: I think I have a pick for y'all, but I'll save that for later.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but now the, we've, we've almost like completely swung in the other direction. And now the more ES6 you know, the easier your experience is going to be. Like if you can write a native class and you can think of it in terms of When I click the button, this method is called, and here is a class field, and I can use that in my template, right? I can render its value here inside this H1 or something like that. More than ever, just knowing ES6, that is the foundational thing you need to know. And the Ember bit might be like the last 10%, and that should take you a really long way. For my wife, who I mentioned built this Monopoly game, she knew ES6, she knew how to think about components in terms of how she would break up a big chunk of HTML into subparts, didn't know any Ember, and she was able to get through it like through spending maybe an hour learning how to use this stuff. And I'm talking about Ember Octane now, this new edition of Ember. But it just feels like you're writing ES6 and mainly you're working with two decorators, one to indicate that when something changes, the HTML should be updated. And the other is like a method that is hooked up to a DOM event. That's all you have to think about. There's no elaborate you know, set of base classes that you have to extend from. Um, I think that it is even simpler than the React mental model in that we don't even have a set state. We just say like this dot foo equals some value and everything updates automatically. Like You don't even have to think about set state. You don't have to think about should component update. We've even moved our lifecycle hooks away from components and towards DOM elements. So instead of thinking in terms of when the component is inserted in the DOM, run this function. You could just say, whenever this div is rendered, run this function. And that lets you you put things behind conditionals. Like you could have within a component a toggle that you know, shows something or hides it and that that would be like your you know component did mount, right? That would be, you know, fired every time that's hidden and shown again. And so you can really think about things in terms of these concerns relate to elements. The component class is super simple. It's it is two decorators effectively and almost nothing else. And that's where the complexity lives in a modern single page app. It's all about the component. So I'm super excited that things have have taken, taken a turn in this direction, especially as a teacher, right? I used, My Ember material used to be four days. Like you give me a new hire in four days, I can kind of get them up and running and learning about, you know, how do we work with data and state? How do we compose components together? Four days later, I can get someone through that. Now we're down to one day. And it's a lot more fun, to be honest, because it just feels like you're using the programming language. Like we're not Ember developers anymore. We're JavaScript developers. And this is a little library we sprinkle in so that, you know, we don't have to worry about DOM manipulation. That's effectively how things feel. So I think it's a lot more approachable than it used to be. And that's, that seemed to be what you're getting at, Amy.
2: Yep, definitely. That makes me super happy. I mean, also too, there, so I was, I thought it was a blog post, but it was just a tweet that I saw. And this guy kind of, he must be in the Ruby community. Oh, he's on Ruby Rogues. Nate Hopkins. I don't know. He was just talking about how like GitHub uses Rails, Stripe uses Rails, Kickstarter, um, Twitch. Like all these people are still on it. And yeah, I can share the tweet in the notes. But yeah, yeah. it's still a very popular thing. And yeah, there's trade-offs with everything.
4: There are trade-offs with everything, and <laughs> I might I might get I might lose some some followers by saying this. But the JavaScript community, it, part of it is fashion. People love to chase the newest, hottest thing. Mm. Um, Sometimes it turns out to be really popular. Sometimes it turns out to sort of quiet down and not, not really get traction. And honestly, like when you're building an app that is of significant size, no matter what you use for your library, that's going to account for like eight to 10% of your total size. And, The people that need to use this stuff, like GitHub using Rails, like they figure out a way to make it fast. If you have a good team, if you are kind of building things in the the idiomatic way, you can get a lot out of it. But you just have to kind of understand the, the limitations of what you're working with. If it's Rails, like you've got a single thread, it is not C++. So if you're doing like some really intense work, you should probably like move that to a background process. But there's no reason why an app like GitHub has to move, right? It's just spitting out HTML. It's not doing the Git merge inside their web app. And Ember is, can be thought of in a similar way in that like there are teams out there that have been really successful with it. And like if you're building an app of significant size, like a Facebook or a LinkedIn.com, really the challenge is, how do you get hundreds or thousands of engineers working harmoniously so that they can have good code quality. And so, you know, they can like distribute knowledge amongst themselves. And that is probably your biggest concern. Everything else is like picking a tool for the job. And there are many good tools out there.
0: You know, it's interesting too, you made that point, you know, they'll figure out a way to make it fast. And having been involved in the Rails community for a while, and you know, I'm also still a panelist on Ruby Rogues. It's fascinating to me just how to what length sometimes they'll go because GitHub for a long time was running its own custom version of Rails based on an older version of Rails. And so they had just tweaked it around for their own, you know, performance needs. And then recently the Rails team got with them and figured out what they needed, you know, so they basically built in the the upgrades that GitHub and Shopify had pioneered for Rails, put them into Rails Core, and now they're both running Rails six it circles back to the community too. And that's that's a really important thing in a lot of these communities is that these kinds of innovations aren't just private things. They they tend to trickle back out to the people who use them.
4: Yep, that's the open source model, right? Sometimes yeah. you have to fork and prove it out and then get back into the mainline and then everybody benefits from your improvement. Yep. I haven't seen that with Ember, by the way. Like we have successfully dodged that.
0: Give it time. Yeah. It happens everywhere. It's really interesting where it happens, to, but it happens everywhere.
5: On the uh, community, and I'm sort of curious, I have worked mostly in uh, React, and one of the strengths and arguably weaknesses of the React community is how many available solutions there are in terms of third-party open-source modules that you can install, uh, typically via NPM or YARN. What's the scene like with Ember? I haven't worked with Ember before, so I'm not sure. Is Does it support that kind of importable module? And you know, are there people out there building them to sort of make your life easier so you spend less time recreating wheels that have already been created and more time writing your own code?
4: So uh, Ember has this concept of an add-on, and it's just sort of an NPM package with some extra hooks that you can use to like generate some code whenever this package is installed in an app. I think it's one of the biggest strengths of the ecosystem. NPM packages like Lodash, like if you wanted to use those, everything of course just works. Like we would be really shooting ourselves in the foot if we got in the way of that. And for things where there's not a whole lot of benefit in a in a family of potentially diverging solutions like server-side rendering, for example, um, there are officially maintained packages for that kind of thing. Like. Getting an Ember app to a point where it's server rendered, it's like one line in your terminal. You install Ember CLI fast boot, and now if you like view source, you'll see that things are server rendered. One thing that has happened recently, and I think it it is a, a learned lesson, is parts of the framework are opening up to allow experimentation with things like the component model. So one of the exciting advancements in the React ecosystem has been the use of hooks. And that allows you to have stateful components that are expressed as, you know, just functions that return JSX. We want people to be able to experiment with components as well. So you can actually write, you can use a public API to define your own type of component. And there's an officially supported way of sort of experimenting in that area. So beyond just like having different solutions for state management, like, The idea of you know being able to use redux instead of ember data yeah of course we support the ability to do that but going one step further like if you want to figure out a way to try to use jsx with ember it in theory may be possible you'd have to do some conversion to figure out how to take you know the arbitrary logic that can be in a react render function and like somehow convert it over to handlebars But in theory, it is a blank that you can fill in whichever way you like. So we have some packages to let you use like functional components, even in the like, we have these things called modifiers, which in the Angular world would be the equivalent of pipes, where you can just sort of like, or sorry, they would be structural directives, something you can just like drop onto an HTML element, and it ends up being like highlighted on hover, or it has a tooltip, where it reads like a DOM attribute, and it renders that as a tooltip. So there are lots of different places where you can, like, kind of make Ember your own without running the risk of diverging and, you know, finding that you have, you have chosen poorly and you, you're like, chose to use stylus instead of, you know, styled components or whatever the, the advisable thing to do in a React app is these days. So I like that. I like official extensibility points. And that's, that's part of what's been in Ember, Ember's DNA the whole time. And the idea of, like, things work a particular way by default, right? That's convention over configuration. But there are also these great escape hatches that you can use. If you want to say, like, I have a need to do something different, there's the option of doing that. There's one company I'm aware of that even uses Ember components that render out to Swift views. So they're not even using Ember to build a web application. They're building native apps. And this is possible because... You know, you can just like replace a method with something else. And if you, if you know what you're doing, and like in classic Ember, you really needed to know what you're doing to do this, the sky's the limit. But there, there is more flexibility than ever while maintaining sort of the happy path. I see that as being happier than it's ever been.
0: Nice. One thing that if I remember right too, uh, Ember has had testing as a first-class citizen, which is something that it took from Rails.
4: Yep. So, units are default solution, but you can drop in Mocha. I have personally written a library for snapshot based testing if you like that aspect of uh, Jest. Recently at LinkedIn, we've been working on integrating a library called Backstop.js for visual regression testing. So, if you, and every front end developer has, has accidentally dropped a button off of the screen by making a CSS change. So, this effectively like, takes a screenshot using headless Chrome, saves it into your Git repo as a baseline. And then, you know, as you make changes, you're protected from making unintentional visual changes to your app because they'll be compared against that screenshot. And you have to be deliberate about saying like, yes, I meant that. And yes, take this image as the new baseline. So we've got a whole lot of testing. Like when you generate a new app, it's all in there for you. When you generate new components, you get a a passing integration test as well, where you just write a little snippet of handlebars and then assert against the DOM. So it is quite easy. And we're very mindful of keeping that story, I think, like the best in the JavaScript ecosystem in terms of setting people up for success and encouraging good craftsmanship.
0: Yeah, I wrote a blog post recently and I talked about, it was a response to the 10x engineer thing that showed up on Twitter. And yeah, one of the points that I made was that top engineers write tests. I don't care if you write them before or after. Most people will realize after having written a few systems, they can't always count on remembering all of the assumptions they made when they wrote their code. And so, you know, putting tests in there to kind of check your thinking and remind you that something was important is, well, it's important. It's, it's interesting to me just to see, okay, you know, what systems make this a first class citizen and then which don't. And, you know, sometimes if they don't make it a first class citizen, you can get a long way with testing and, it, you know, it's natural because the tools are good. And then you're going to run up into the couple of areas where the two things just don't quite, you know, the, the gears don't quite mesh the way you want them to. And you have to do a whole bunch of other things to to get that extra gear in there to get things to turn the way you want.
4: Totally agree. And I, I absolutely agree with that point about testing being a mechanism for documenting the assumptions that you made when you wrote the code and your intent when you wrote the code. That's often for an undocumented piece of code that is the first place I look to try to figure out what was this person, which is sometimes me, trying to do when they wrote this.
0: Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting too because you get into these systems where hopefully you're writing quote-unquote self-documenting code. It's not always possible, but you want your code to be as readable as possible so somebody can look at it and you know draw out what it was meant to do. But you can't always do that. You can't always put documentation in line or around it that's going to stay up to date. And so tests are another good backstop for that. And, and what's really interesting is, yeah, people can throw out examples of where these, any of these don't work. And that's because they're all imperfect systems. But if you have enough of them in the right places and you make them easy enough to maintain, then you know, after a while, it really doesn't take that much more time to make sure that everything is doing what it's supposed to.
4: Totally agree. And it takes a more reliable amount of time. Because when you're gambling, like, and you're not writing those tests as you go along, oftentimes you can end up tripping over your own shoelaces and having to, you know, delete the file and start over, you know, because that's, for some knots, it's faster just to throw throw it in the trash and uh, try to start again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. One other thing that I, I thought was interesting that you mentioned in the notes that we got from you was just developer education. Yep. So why is this so important? I mean, I have my own opinions but you're the guest and everybody can hear my opinions when they want, so.
4: Working at LinkedIn, we, we look at employment numbers and the rate that new jobs open, things like that all the time. We, we have economists on staff um, and you can follow them on LinkedIn that will like look at jobs reports and figure out what's going on. So obviously, and this should be no surprise to everyone, software engineering is growing like crazy and is likely to continue growing growing at many times the rate that other careers are growing in terms of the number of available jobs. The rate that we're graduating new people from computer science programs, that is not keeping up at all. So what that means, like that rate of high growth, that means that increasingly we have fewer senior people, fewer people with a lot of experience spread out over bigger groups of developers that have less experience right there's like tons of new people are entering the workforce and before long it's like only two out of 20 people or something will have like 10 plus years of experience so what that means is that people are coming from unconventional backgrounds right they're not getting that cs degree and on average engineering teams are getting more and more junior so it is, I think, the the responsibility, and it is it is really a mandate as good community ecosystem, you know, citizens for people who have been around for a while or, or people that have learned something. Period. Like you don't you don't have to have like many years of experience, but once you figure something out, we need good mechanisms for distributing that knowledge. Like even if you're an intern that has spent three months working on some project and you went deep into a particular area, and you know something that few other people know, we need to start working on means of distributing that out and making it so that, you know, everybody knows how to do this, or everyone can learn it when they need to, to reach for that. Before long, and I think a lot of a lot of teams are feeling this already, before long, you start to really, really hurt in this area. And by that, I mean, like, new people are coming in and they have less experience than we're used to seeing, right? They, they don't remember like the jQuery days or all they know is react. Like you hire a new person from a coding boot camp; they know react. So we need to get good at like building video courses and having like methodical ways of using code reviews as an instructional mechanism where you can have a conversation about, you know, learning how somebody else sees this problem and how they would think about solving it. And like, now you understand how to relate to somebody who comes from that background. The more we can do that, the better we're going to be able to sort of stay stable as this trend continues, as more, less experienced people come in, and as that you know, developer with a lot of
5: experience starts to become more and more rare. In addition to Mike, there are two panelists on this episode, at least two panelists who spend a decent amount of their time educating other developers, both Chris Ferdinandi and myself produce a lot of JavaScript tutorials. And I think we very much share those opinions uh, and those beliefs that it's it's vitally important to share what you've learned and to, to help other people get to advance their knowledge.
2: It's really interesting too, like the role that I'm in right now. So my title is architect. I'm kind of more like principal front end, but like they specifically hired me, you know, this is obviously a much smaller company. I'm at Tuft & Needle now. But When they brought me in for the interview process, like they had hired a lot of more junior devs and they needed somebody to kind of like, I would say, like put up guardrails for those people. And what I said, like I gave my job description when I first started was like anything that allows the team to fall into the pit of success. So like all that to say, I don't know, I would love to see like more companies have a role like this because... I mean, this is something like I speak on constantly about like how many juniors we have and needing ways to like get them up to mid and senior quickly. Like it would be just super beneficial if more companies did this, because I think they are like, they're really missing out if they don't try to leverage the talent that is available. And like a lot of these people are extremely hungry, extremely eager. They just need time and, and guidance.
0: Well and I was just going to say on that front I mean having somebody there that is in charge of the training is helpful but there's so much material out there that honestly you can get a long ways on this just by incentivizing people to go find it and learn it and then give it give them the opportunity to do it and then and then you can bring the mentorship into your system you know when people need it
4: On that note I'm going to plug the fact that LinkedIn has allowed me to open source my Ember Octane workshop. So if you are interested in conducting a workshop at your company, you should be able to go to the the notes for this episode of the podcast, find a link to that, that workshop. And there's notes that go along with each of the 21 steps we go through to build a Slack clone with Ember Octane. In addition to that, before the end of the year, I'll be doing the same thing for my TypeScript workshop. So this is, this is part of LinkedIn's mission to help people like, reach their next opportunity. And this is part of how we're trying to trying to help this situation through you know, distributing knowledge and through um, making this as much of an open source contribution as the code that we're writing underneath it.
0: Nice. And while we're talking about this, you've done, like we mentioned before, courses on front-end masters. Do you want to tell us what courses you've done and how people can find those? Yes.
4: So if you go to frontendmasters.com and you search for my name, Mike North, as a teacher, you should be able to see a listing of all the things that I have taught there. Of course, the Ember stuff, but I also do their TypeScript training. So we just recorded a great TypeScript 3 course that is a tiny bit under four hours long. And one of the cool things that I learned about teaching this material is we spend the whole class in visual studio code and that's because like when you're learning typescript hovering over all those variables and all those functions and seeing what the tooltips show you that is the best tool i've found for understanding what's going on behind the scenes because you have the code that runs but you also have like all of these constraints that you're designing with with the types and because there's no debugger for types there's no way to kind of like like infer what's going on inside the system. Those tooltips are the best you can get where you can see like, what is this regarded as? And I returned the following thing for my function. What is the return type of this function now? So it was a, a really unique way of presenting that material that the people who watch the course seem to really love. We've seen a lot of, a lot of people watching that one and a bunch of other stuff. So I have an SEO course a PWA course where we build like an Instacart clone that even works offline. So Steve Kinney and I teamed up for that and a bunch more. So go and take a look. As somebody that has sort of bounced around from, you know, programming robots where you had like 8K of memory for your code and the runtime memory to web apps, to desktop apps. Like I've sort of touched on a bunch of different areas. And because one of my passions is kind of packaging that knowledge up and passing it on. I've tried to do that to the highest degree possible on front-end masters because they they make it really easy for uh, instructors to kind of just point a camera at you and you do your thing and then they take care of all of the other things that I'm terrible at, like editing.
0: Yeah, I like their courses because you have people that are there present that can ask the questions. You you kind of get the best of both worlds as far as, you know, the in-person and the recorded and so usually somebody will ask the same stupid question I had. All right. Well, is there anything else we should have jumped on that we didn't? Anything else you want to discuss?
4: Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, TypeScript because that is a super exciting area that I'm trying to find good ways that you can roll that out to an engineering org like LinkedIn's. And one of the challenges, and this is almost like an open request to the JavaScript community that, that maybe you can help think of solutions that address this challenge one of the challenges is how do you use typescript and still have semver like stability guarantees typescript itself they do not follow semver just about every uh, middle digit release they have like 3.5 3.6 that comes with a list of breaking changes and this can be challenging because if you want to have a Semver friendly library, like for example, Ember, right? They, like, we have some very strict stability guarantees. If you're on a 3.x release, like you should be able to upgrade all the way up until just before 4.0, nothing should break. Like we would consider that to be a, a bug that we would backport to fix. Like that is a big problem.
1: As if so, I need another reason to hate, hate TypeScript.
4: Well, it's so I love TypeScript as a tool, and I think if you don't like TypeScript and you like Visual Studio Code, that's a little bit of a you're like you're you're getting two edges of a double-edged sword, right? Because as a piece of tooling, as something that can understand code and understand what functions return and like all of that inference that that goes on, that is a huge boon for developer productivity. The language itself can be challenging. And some people feel like all of those nice autocompletes you get and the, the developer experience makes TypeScript great for beginners. I've not found that to be the case. And I say this having taught like well over a thousand people how to use this language. Like it is quite challenging. It's even challenging to take someone who's written Java and move them over to TypeScript. And they're already thinking in terms of static types. They, it, it, it's this idea of you know, the union and intersection types and structural types, which are not something that you see in a lot of programming languages. You see it sometimes as like similar ideas in a language feature called pattern matching, right? Where you can, through pattern matching, almost like assert that some value matches a particular structure. But for a lot of folks, this is a this is the first time that they're encountering this kind of thing. So through finding ways to make TypeScript Semver friendly. And I'm not saying like avoid all breaking changes in the compiler, but more if we start trying to publish types from a library and we want those types to not break, how do we deal with that? Do we have to just say we use the compiler version 3.6 and we support nothing else and whatever breaking changes might happen, like we're just going to tell you to go back to 3.6. Like that's one solution. We hope we don't have to do that. But in order to build a bridge in between the, this world of like high stability and this world of like, the answer is always just update your compiler version in order to get the fix. We have to find a way to reconcile those two things, or we're just going to be in a, in a world where like you get locked into a particular version of something and you just can't upgrade beyond a certain point because it's too much work and too many things have changed. And, and I'm referring to like, if Lodash decides to drop support for an old compiler version, and you're not ready to start using that compiler, you're in a tough spot. So that's one of the problems that I'm working on. And I would like, like I am sympathetic with the challenges of building a type system that is backwards compatible. I know the TypeScript team's view is that any change is a breaking change when it comes to types. And that's because like, if you regard the, the current behavior of the system as its public API, any change at all could potentially break somebody. So like, I, I understand that and I have not built one of these things. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna pass judgment as if like there's a better way of doing it. At the same time, for libraries that publish type information and libraries that are written in TypeScript, they need to be able to have semver guarantees so that they can allow their users to have stability and to be insulated from those, those uh, compiler changes. That is one of the big challenges I see in this area. And in addition to that, teaching is a big challenge in this area. I've seen a lot of people kind of jump into this this language that is so similar to JavaScript that they skip the learning process. Like you would not go and start just like look at Hello World in Rust and then just start trying to write Rust and ship it to production from that point. No one would ever do that. But somehow people feel that they can do that with TypeScript. And so you end up with a lot of wacky stuff out there that just results from people having excused themselves from the normal process of learning how things work and learning like, what are the patterns I should be using? What will be successful and what won't be?
5: You also end up with a lot of TypeScript that uses any in many, many places where it really shouldn't because as soon as people run into something, they don't know how to diagnose. And I say this as somebody who has had to dive into TypeScript for client work without being fully versed in it. Any is the great escape hatch, right? Like, all right, this isn't working. I need to ship it. Find any. There we go.
4: Yep. Sometimes any is appropriate. Like an argument past a console log. That absolutely should be an any. You right. can like, so you do see a lot of things that kind of go in that direction. And the other extreme is people start writing their app interfaces first. And it's like basically pouring their code in cement, right? Where everything is sort of seized up in this big ball of constraints where you're not relying on inference as much as you should. And it becomes extremely difficult to refactor, right? Like you change anything at all. And like, you just see red squiggles light up everywhere. Your whole Uh, code breaks. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Everything breaks. And, and that, that certainly is like defeating the promise of improved developer experience, improved productivity, right? That's what you should be getting from this kind of thing. So my ask there for for listeners is if you're interested in this area, great. You should go and look at the TypeScript deep dive. It is a wonderful free ebook. If you just search for TypeScript deep deep dive, you will find it. And also, if you search for new TypeScript handbook, you can see the work in progress for the upcoming new documentation that will go with TypeScript itself, and it is extremely detailed. But do yourself a favor and learn how to use this tool before you start shipping code to production, because that's what you would do with anything else. The fact that it looks a lot like JavaScript
5: should not make too much of a difference in this area. Just a quick uh, note to mention to our readers that we do have comments, or our listeners rather, that we do have comments underneath all of these episodes, and we would love to hear feedback. If you have any thoughts on these subjects, please definitely uh, drop us a line.
0: The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So, if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check
5: out the DevEd podcast. I think we should move to picks. Usually we go with the guest last. So, let's start with uh, Chris Fernandi. Anything? Uh, what are you picking this week?
1: So, uh, two picks for me today. So, I've been running for the last year or two a, an online project based JavaScript training program for beginners called the Vanilla JS Academy. I'm over at vanillajsacademy.com. After a couple of years of doing this and a lot of student feedback and observing the different ways that people learn and some of the like, recurring challenges I see a lot of beginners hitting, I completely redesigned the program and a new session is kicking off on October 14th, been completely rebuilt with a different approach to learning, some new techniques, some new projects. I think it's going to be really, really, really good and a lot of fun for folks. If anybody who's listening to this is interested, um, I think by the time this comes out, you may only have like a week or so to register. You can get 30% off as a JavaScript Jabber listener with the code JSJabber at checkout. But yeah, go check that out. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. And the only other thing is um, I often rant about how we're over-engineering what we do for the web. Um, And I talk a lot about kind of this idea of the lean web um, I ended up putting together a, uh, a website for this topic at leanweb.dev where you can watch a video of me talking about this. You can grab my slides. You can um, read an ebook version if you want and access some resources on how to build a simpler, faster World Wide Web. Um, so once again, that's at leanweb.dev. And that's it for me this week. Cool. Uh, how about AJ?
3: All right. I'm actually going to pick the same thing I picked last week, but slightly differently. So I've been... Been getting back into my GameCube, been playing a little Pikmin, been playing a little other stuff. I'd ordered different, I don't know what to call them, accessories to enhance my GameCube experience. One of them that arrived that I would 100% endorse, if you have a GameCube, you must have the Carby V2 by Insurrection Industries, which uses the digital port on the back of the GameCube, so you have to have one of the original... GameCube's not one of the later runs, but if you have two if you have two AV outputs on the back, one's labeled digital, the other one's labeled like RCA or analog or I forget what it's labeled, but that's what this is for. It uses an unused development feature of the GameCube that was never productionized for it was supposedly going to be for like 3D goggles or something, but it has true digital output so you get 480p out of the back of it. And then I've ordered an upscaler that uh, maybe I'll recommend some episodes in the future because it's going to take a little bit to get here. It's an Indiegogo thing. Anyway, the Cardi V2 for taking your GameCube to true 480p HDMI images are super crisp. It's the only way to play GameCube on a modern screen that isn't a CRT because it just looks so terrible otherwise. And I've got a link to my blog post that is being refined if you're interested in Modding your own GameCube. I've, I'm I'm basically trying to collect a list of every possible thing that you could do that you'd want to do to make it the ultimate GameCube. So that's that. Oh, and there's no JavaScript on it. I don't know how to run JavaScript on it. Just fair warning: it's not going to help you with your JavaScript career. Awesome. Well, it'll help you unwind after a long day of writing JavaScript. Whew that yes.
4: JavaScript man?
3: Yes, or during because. <laughs> so here's here's the thing. I mentioned this last time too, I think, but so everybody loves playing Melee and everybody loves playing with GameCube controllers, but the Wii doesn't have as good video output. So if you get a GameCube, you can actually, you know, set up your office Melee station with the GameCube rather than the Wii and use the Carby, you get better output. Also, I don't even really treat this thing as pics. I just treat it as like news, what's going on in my life, because there's a lot of self picks out i you. I'm, I'm picking up more freelancing work and I want to, I'm, I'm going to. Not picking myself. I'm just announcing news. So I, I mostly am doing Go for freelancing work right now, but I'm also doing a little Rust and I'm hardcore on JavaScript, but I just don't do the TypeScript and all that new stuff. I'm I'm one of those losers like Chris that just wants to stick to the basics. So anyway, if you're if you're into that kind of thing that you know nobody is anymore, but if you're into that, you can reach out to me and let me know.
0: Nice. Yeah, nothing like unwinding on the GameCube. I, I have one sitting behind me actually. So I need to get that hooked up to my TV. You better um, get
3: the Carby. You're going to love it.
0: It'll make my life better, huh?
3: Use my right. affiliate link in the chat there.
0: <laughs> cool. Amy, do you have some picks for us?
2: I do. Um, since we kind of talked about working with beginners today, I was scanning Hacker News like I always do and found what I thought would be would have been a great introduction to recursion had I stumbled upon this first myself instead of some of the stuff that I did when I was learning it. So that's going to be my pick for today. I just think he explains it in a uh, in a better way than majority of the blog posts do. So I'm going to go with that. I'm trying to think if I have any like health ones. Shoot, I do, but I don't have the name of the bar off the top of my head. I have them at GNC. I'll, I'll try to get it for next week. But I was traveling recently and I found these bars that have like zinc and extra vitamin C in them. So they're like specifically like protein bars for people who travel so that's kind of cool but not super helpful if I don't have the link so I'll have to get that for next week
0: yep I've been looking around for those pumpkin quest bars that you mentioned last week and I cannot find them anywhere
2: oh they're so good
0: don't tell me that It's, it's like denying me the promised land
2: oh man I did sorry now I'm typing maybe I do have a pick I gotta go to my Amazon orders really quick I ordered some protein cereal on Amazon the other day and holy smokes it was amazing it's by wholesome provisions but they have like these chocolate cheerio looking things and apple cinnamon ones the nutrition on these is like i don't know how they do this it's probably a bunch of chemicals but hey it tastes good uh there's like 115 calories 15 grams of protein eight grams of carbs I think it might be soy protein. So toss some milk in there if you want a complete protein. But oh my God, they're amazing. I'll put a link to those in the show notes too.
0: Nice. Yeah, they have the Pumpkin Pie Quest bars on Amazon. So I might just have to make my life better
5: that way. Yeah, do it. (laughs) All right. Christopher, what are your picks? My pick this week is... um well, let's see. It's not going to be as new by the time this comes out, but I'm picking the new Tool album, which I actually did not like at all the first time I listened to it. It is not as hard rock oriented as some of their previous releases. The way I finally wrapped my head around it was to realize that it's basically an hour and a half long experience of listening to soundscapes, many of which are in very strange time signatures, and less about listening to rock and roll music. Several of the tracks are like 11 to 15 minutes long, which again is not super uncommon for that particular band, but this is like the whole album is almost all of those. So it's kind of a weird pick to start out by saying I didn't like it and then have a whole bunch of caveats, but I actually think it's a really good and really interesting album. Musicians are doing a tremendous amount of really interesting work with it. It took me a few listens to start to really be able to appreciate what was there instead of listening for what had been there 13 years ago, the last time they released an album. So. Anyway, opinions are heavily divided on Tool and on uh, things relating to that band. But if you are a fan or if you are curious, uh, definitely recommend checking out the new album. Nice. I
0: love that you're saying that opinions are heavily divided. It's just like, well, if you don't like them, this is something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, there are a lot of things out there people get fired up about. I just don't understand why. If, if you don't like it, just yeah, don't bring it into your life. Anyway. Um, Steve, do you have some picks for us?
4: Yep. So the first one's a dad pick. It's a book called One, Two, Three Magic about uh, behavior modification for kids. It's a lot of don't talk, just kind of stop the behavior and move on with your day. And then the other one is uh, a self-plug. I'm trying to start a project called RGDK for reactive game development. Uh, it's on Find Collabs. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes. So I'm looking for help on that.
1: Steve, I really like both the phrase dad pick and the like gentle baby cooing in the background. That was adorable and my heart just exploded. Yeah, sorry about that. She's, uh, she's in my lap right now. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for a damn thing, man. That's adorable. <laughs> yep. And you uh, sample
4: that and have that running in the background next episode.
1: I know, right? Oh my God. <laughs> she's perfect, man. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
4: And a few of
0: us have been there, so. I don't remember who on here has kids and doesn't, but I've definitely done that a few times where you know you're trying to keep the baby quiet while you're recording a podcast. So all right. I'm gonna jump in with a few picks. So last week we released an episode that I kind of did solo and I was talking about the uh, 10x engineer tweets, and I got a ton of feedback on it. And a few people were saying, you know, where do we get more of your rants on things and and stuff like that? Well, I started a show a while back, and I kind of let it languish for a while. Called the DevRev, and I was putting it up on YouTube, and I was kind of aiming for about ten minutes worth of content. And this is also connected. I went down to RxJS Live last week, where we talked about uh, RxJS and observables. That's what that was. What the whole conference was about. It was down in Las Vegas, so I just you know drove down for two days. But anyway, I wound up getting some video equipment because I want to start the DevRev back up, and especially with all the feedback. Uh, You know, I really want to get it going, but I really want to do video. I want to start doing more video with the shows like JavaScript Jabber. And so I I invested in some equipment. I've been looking at some of this for a while, but yeah. So the equipment that I got, I got the Nikon D5600 camera. And I got the package that has two lenses in it. So one's kind of longer range and the other one's close up. For the video, I don't know that I'm going to use the, the, you know, kind of the longer, more telescopic I guess lens on it I'll probably be using the shorter lens you know that gets a little bit wider angle and gets a little bit closer but anyway got some really great video at rxjs live just interviewing people and stuff like that I also got the Rode news shooter and what that is is it's got it's a wireless mic system so you have the receiver that you know sits on the tripod and attaches the camera and then you have the transmitter that you screw onto the bottom of an xlr mic and most XLR mics get their power through the, the XLR plug. That's the three-prong plug that we see in the standard microphones. And this provides power and everything, and it just takes a couple of AA batteries. So it it's really nice and really easy to tote around. And I just put an, uh, a Shure SM58 microphone on it, which is you a know, pretty standard mic, and it sounded awesome. It sounded really good. There was a video that I had to look up on YouTube, and I'll find that and put that in the show notes too. You have to get around the preamp that's in your camera. Otherwise it it puts a hiss into the video. So I figured that out and I'll, I'll put that link in. And then I also got the Viltrox uh, light panel. It was just one of the cheaper LED light panels that you can get on Amazon that, you know, you can point at something and it just kind of floods the area and gives you a nice uh, lighting situation. I have some bigger lights here at home, but I didn't really want to take another whole, you know, bit of apparatus with me to to record. So, anyway, um, I'm excited about that. I'm probably gonna get some episodes recorded today. I'm also planning on setting up because I, I bought a while ago. I bought a, a green screen, and I just have never set it up. And so, yeah, then I might, you know, put some Battlestar Galactica or you know something cool behind me while I'm talking. But so, if you liked that episode and you're looking for more from me directly, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be putting all that up, and that's kind of the the tech stack that I'm using for that stuff. And then one final pick, I should probably just save this till Thursday. I'll just save it to Thursday, but it's kids books that I'm going to be reading my kids. So Mike, do you have some picks for us?
4: Yes, I do. I have two. The first one is something that my team has been working on called Tracer Bench. So this is uh, Chris Selden and Mark Lynch, who uh, they do a lot of Ember work as well. This is for measuring the performance of a web application. So if you are frustrated with Lighthouse and the fact that, you can audit your app three times in a row and get three different scores. And, you know, like Spotify is updating in the background and everything gets thrown off and that kind of thing. This is a tool where basically you would leave it overnight and it would randomly test two different scenarios and give you a great PDF report around, you know, page load time and one of the things rendered. It is a more uh, professional grade performance benchmarking app And it is all built on top of uh, headless Chrome, which is great because that is a good representation of what your users are probably actually running your app on. The other pick I wanted to give is a conference that's coming up, GitHub Universe. So I I am sure uh, people who are in the JavaScript community, they are likely to have noticed that GitHub is moving faster than it ever has. So this year we got GitHub acting as a, a package registry and GitHub acting as a CI engine GitHub Actions is basically a CI service so they're moving really really quickly there's more new stuff coming up every couple months and and uh, I'm used to thinking about GitHub as being kind of a very reliable and stable and conservative platform that doesn't really add new features all that often but something's changed so this would be a great time to kind of tap into what's going on and to Attend this conference and hear about what the vision is for what seems to be kind of a unified place to go for writing your code, testing your code, and publishing your packages. So it seems like GitHub is trying to kind of vertically integrate and um, become all of those things. So, GitHub Universe, November 13th and 14th in San Francisco. Check it out.
0: Nice. I really want to make it to that, but I've got like four other conferences right around then, and I've got to pick. So, yep. Yeah. Speaking of which, you, you work for LinkedIn and uh, LinkedIn is owned by Microsoft. I'm going to be at Microsoft Ignite earlier that month. So,
4: in November. So, awesome. Thanks for coming.
0: <laughs> Mike, if people want to follow you online or see what you're working on or any of that good stuff, where do they find you?
4: So, on GitHub, I'm Mike North. And on Twitter, I am Michael L North. Those are the places to find me. Oh, also, obviously, LinkedIn. I am North M. This is the, the curse of having a common name. My username was taken just about everywhere, so I have to pick different ones.
0: Yeah, makes sense. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks again for coming, Mike.
4: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, well, we'll wrap this up and we'll be back next week. Bye. So long ever. See you all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.